Well, um, before we study the, before we enter into the study of the Word of God, let's take an opportunity to confess any sins that uh, we haven't confessed already before we got here, and uh, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to assemble as you have commanded us to do in the book of Hebrews to not forsake the assembling of ourselves. We thank you for the opportunity to do this in peace. We thank you that you've recorded your word for us. We thank you that you make it clear to us that we may accept it, believe it, trust it, and digest it to make it part of our lives. We ask that you help us do this this very evening as if it is our very last one. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we saw God begin the process of elevating his man, David, and making his reputation great. Elevating David and pushing down the people's man, the people's king, Saul. All of Israel has come to love David except for King Saul, because Saul views David as a threat. He's jealous of him. He's a threat to David's throne, or to Saul's throne, but... Really, Saul shouldn't view David like this at all because David has been nothing but faithful and loyal to his king and to his country. David defeated the giant, the, the, the Philistine. He's more often than not referred to simply as the Philistine. It's Goliath. And by David killing Goliath, that created an immediate victory for the Israelites because when, David, when, when Goliath fell then the Philistine army fled and the Israelite army immediately went after them. So it was, it was a double victory, killing the giant, killing the one who had been taunting Israel for 40 days. Israel was frozen in fear as the giant taunted them. David kills the giant, kills the immediate threat, and creates an immediate military victory for all of Israel. This is a great victory for his king, for David's king and for David's country. But Saul distrusts David. He even hates him, so he tries to get rid of him. He, gets, he, he comes up with this plan to get rid of David in a very cowardly fashion because he wants to send David off. This is just by way of review from what we saw last time. He wants to send David off to fight some, some battles with the Philistines hoping that the Philistines will do the dirty work of Saul, hoping that in one of these battles the Philistines will take out David and then Saul won't have to do it because Saul knows that David is, is a popular hero among the people. But the more Saul tries to eliminate David, the more God elevates David. And every battle that David goes off to fight because Saul sends him out to get him killed David wins the battle, and David becomes more and more popular. So Saul's plan backfires and backfires and backfires, and this infuriates Saul more and more. Every time he tries to destroy David, God elevates David, and this actually creates fear in Saul because his plan and his effort is continually thwarted. That's the background. That's just by way of review from last time. So let's begin chapter 19, verse 1 of 1 Samuel. It reads like this. 
Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. Saul is tired of tiptoeing around. He's tired about tired of, of these plans of, I'm going to kind of indirectly get David out of the way. Saul's tired of that. So he just says, I'm going to issue the execution order now. And I order my people to kill David. I order my son, Jonathan, the crown prince, to kill David. And I order my servants to kill David. It says Jonathan delighted in David. Jonathan delighted greatly in David. Jonathan's care for David, his delight with David, is genuine and true, unlike his father's. Remember back in chapter 18, verse 22, Saul tried to trick David, and he orders his servants to speak to David secretly, it says. The servants were to say to David, Behold, the king delights in you. Same Hebrew word, same Hebrew construction. And all his servants love you. What we're seeing here is a contrast between Saul and his eldest son, the crown prince, Jonathan. Saul pretended in chapter 18 to delight in David because he was trying secretly to get David killed. Remember in chapter 18, Saul sends his servants to talk to David and say, and tell David, I secretly delight in you and everybody in the court loves you. Please marry my daughter. But in order to marry my daughter, you have to go out and kill 100 Philistines. So David comes in and doesn't kill 100, he kills 200. But there Saul was secretly planning for David to get killed by sending him off to this this mission because he knew David didn't have a dowry of money to pay for the daughter. And instead, Saul created a dowry of dead Philistines. That's the contrast that we're seeing. Saul didn't really delight in David, like he told his servants to tell David in chapter 18. In contrast to Jonathan here, the son of Saul, truly delights in his friend David. The writer is giving us a comparison and a contrast between God's pick and the people's pick. David is so honorable that even Saul's son, even the crown prince, takes David's side. Even the crown prince intervenes for David. This is totally against Jonathan's interest. Totally against Jonathan's interest. It's in Jonathan's interest to let his father do what he's planning to do. I mean, if Saul gets rid of David, then Jonathan gets the throne. He's the oldest son. He's the crown prince. He's next in line. But instead, Jonathan acts against his own interest, And Jonathan argues to his father to not kill David. Jonathan continually abdicates his claim to the throne in favor of David because God's hand is at work. As we saw last time, God is with David, and nothing and no one will thwart God's will. Keep reading in verse 2. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning. And stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I will tell you. Where Saul is deceitful, Jonathan is truthful. 
and honest and faithful. Jonathan is faithful to his covenant that he made with David back in chapter 18, verse 3. Remember, we were told there that Jonathan entered into a covenant with David. That's a covenant of loyalty, of faithfulness. Jonathan is faithful to his covenant. He now speaks frankly with his father. Look at verse 4. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin again. He's able to speak frankly to his father. God has put Jonathan in this position of influence through divine providence. Jonathan boldly says two things to his father. Number one, you are wrong. And number two, you are unwise. You're wrong in sinning against David. I mean, these are strong words to the king of Israel. You're wrong in trying to sin against David because David has been nothing but faithful to you. And besides, this is unwise because David's very valuable. I mean, David got rid of the giant who was taunting us. David is the man who is getting rid of the Philistines. In verse 5, Jonathan gets even more pointed and more specific. For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, Goliath. And the Lord brought, great, brought about great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced, Dad. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause. Jonathan rightly observes, observes that it, is, it was God who gave the victory to Goliath. Jonathan knows what it looks like for God to give military victory. You remember back in chapter 14 where Jonathan and his armor bearer, they go up in the, in the cliffs of Michmash and they charge this garrison of Philistines and God gives them victory. Jonathan knows that God gives them victory. Jonathan recognizes that this was not just luck. This wasn't just, hey, we were amazing fighters. They are amazing fighters. But the idea of two soldiers going up against a garrison is absolute foolishness unless God is at work. And that's why in chapter 14, Jonathan recognized that it was God who gave them victory. And he recognizes the same thing with David, that it was God who gave David victory before the giant. This is what Jonathan says to his father, recognizing that God gave the victory to young David. What we see with Saul is an alarming, an alarming pattern. Every time there's a man who serves God in a spectacular way, every time there's a man who, who protects Israel by being empowered by God, Saul wants to kill him. Saul did it with Jonathan in chapter 14, and Saul does it here with David in chapter 18. Remember in chapter 14, Saul was ready to kill his own son because Saul makes this foolish vow about anybody who eats, any of the soldiers who eat before nightfall, before I have been avenged by, before my enemies have been avenged before me, in other words, the Philistines, anybody who eats, any soldier who eats, it's going to cost him his life. He finds out it's Jonathan who ate, and Saul says, well, I guess you've got to die. My son. And the troops have to step in. This is just as back in chapter 14. The troops have to step in to protect Jonathan from this foolish vow that Saul made back in chapter 14 where he's ready to kill his own son, even though his own son delivered this great military victory at the cliffs of Michmash. Same thing here with David. Saul is ready to kill David. As we've seen before, 
Saul, I believe, is a believer. Chapter 10 said that God changed Saul's heart. Chapter 10 said that the Spirit of God indwelt Saul and that God was with him. But despite being saved, Saul sometimes does Satan's bidding, perhaps unknowingly, but he does Satan's bidding. Remember, a believer can commit any sin that an unbeliever can commit. No one is immune. Believers are not immune from any particular sin. Sin is incredibly powerful and deceptive, and rebellion against God produces a twisted mind. It causes the mind to reverse right and wrong so that the person pursues evil with the same vigor that they should be pursuing God and God's ways. In verse 5, Jonathan says, don't sin against innocent blood. This is probably a reference to Moses' statement in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 19.10, where it says, innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and blood guiltness be on you. Jonathan's point to his father is, God's going to hold you accountable if you shed the innocent blood of David. You're not going to escape God's judgment. This is a frank conversation between a son and his father. And it shows the level of candor that Jonathan is able to have with the king. Keep reading in verse 6. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. David shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. It's all good. It's all good now. It's all roses now. All this stuff I did, just, just don't worry about it, David. I, I, we're, we're cool, right? We're good. Saul stands down on his desire to kill David, and he restores David to his position in the court, and he even swears by the name of God not to harm David. One thing we know for certain when it comes for Saul, when it comes to Saul, is that he is a man that cannot be trusted. He is a man who is not of his word, and he is a man who does not respect the name of God. This is why he's willing to swear in the name of God. He's a liar and a deceiver. What we're seeing from the writer of Samuel is Saul makes vows that he shouldn't make, chapter 14. Any man, any of my troops who eats before nightfall, they're going to die. He makes vows that are foolish. He makes vows that he shouldn't make, and he keeps those foolish vows, tries to anyway, until the troops come in and save Jonathan. And then here, he makes a vow that he will violate. And the reason why we see this with the writer of 1 Samuel is the writer of 1 Samuel is showing us that Saul is a foolish man, that Saul disrespects the name of God. He does not take God or God's ways seriously. Keep reading in verse 8. When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter so that they fled before him. Notice what's happening. Saul doesn't go out to fight the Philistines anymore. When was the last time we heard of Saul fighting the Philistines? It's been a long time. It's David who goes out and does the work, does the yeoman's work of getting out there 
and rolling up his sleeves and going to war for God's people, going to war for Israel. Saul doesn't do that anymore. Saul is too consumed with protecting his throne. He's too consumed with eliminating a threat to his throne, which is the way he perceives David. So he shirks his military responsibility as king. Keep reading in verse 9. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the harp with his hand. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he stuck the spear into the wall. This is deja vu all over again, as Yoga Bear would say. Deja vu all over again. This is chapter 18, one more time, where Saul tried to spear David back in chapter 18. This is Saul's pattern. God uses David to minister to Israel by giving Israel a great military victory. God uses David to minister to King Saul by playing the wonderful music to soothe his soul. And the only logical conclusion that Saul has is, I must kill him. I'm being sarcastic, of course. His response to the servant of God who ministers to himself and to the people of Israel and to the nation of Israel is, David must be murdered. It's true that the evil spirit sent by God appears to have motivated Saul in this, but that doesn't excuse Saul. God sent the evil, the evil spirit because Saul had rebelled already. The evil spirit was sent by God as punishment for pre-existing rebellion. God, as we have seen, is sovereign even over the demons. When God sent the demon to Saul to torment Saul, God wasn't approving Saul's effort to kill David. He was showing Saul to be the unstable jealous, unfit king that he already is. And so when the court hears Saul swear by God's name, I'm not going to harm David. And then shortly thereafter, he, after, after David wins a military victory, then Saul picks up his spear and tries to kill David in the court in front of everybody. What's happening is everybody is seeing, because God is revealing the total disqualification for Saul to continue to reign as king. Keep reading at verse 10, at the end of verse 10, and David fled and escaped that night. David knew it was time to run. David knows after all of these efforts where the king has been trying to kill him either indirectly by sending him out to the Philistines or directly through Jonathan, through the, the instruction he gave Jonathan and his staff at the beginning of chapter 19, or here, direct, direct, directly, where Saul again pulls, pulls out the, the spear and tries to, to, to kill David. David knows it's time. It's time for me to leave. It's time for me to run. And this is the first night of 10 years of running, roughly 10 years. This is the first night of 10 years of Saul chasing and hunting David. This is what will characterize the relationship between these two men for the next decade, is Saul will be driven, consumed to hunt and kill David. And David will always be just a few steps ahead of Saul. Not a few miles ahead of Saul, but just a few steps. Because David will spend these 10 years running from Saul and trusting in God. What Saul means for evil, 
God means for good. During this period, God will use Saul's evil desire for God's own glory. Because as the psalmist said, he even uses the wrath of man to praise him. God will use Saul's wickedness to train young David, to train him in leadership, to train him in kingship, to train him for royalty. Because when the time is up of training, and when God takes Saul out at the end of 1 Samuel, then it will be time for David to assume the mantle of kingship. Sometimes God keeps a rebellious person alive solely to be a source of testing for others. This is a very scary reality in the Scripture. Let me say it again. Sometimes God keeps a rebellious person alive solely to be a source of testing for others. This is what God will do with Saul. The remainder of his life will be a self-inflicted waste, a sad self-inflicted waste of a life. God will use Saul's life for David's benefit, not for Saul's benefit. And in the end, God will take Saul out under the sin, under death. It's a good reminder for us all. There are serious, serious consequences for rebellion against God. Keep reading in verse 11. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. Saul knew that at some point David's going to make his way home to his lady, to his wife, to Michal, who is the youngest daughter of Saul. He married Michal off to David last time in chapter 18. And Saul, being the horrible father that he is, uses Michal as bait to to get David. Look at verse 11, the end of verse 11. But Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. She loves her husband. At least at this point, she loves her husband. So she wants to protect him. For the second time this chapter, God has used one of Saul's own children to protect and deliver David from their father. The wrongness of Saul's behavior is so obvious to his, own, to his children, to his family, that his children are willing to oppose him. But for Saul, his wrongness, the wrongness of his behavior is blinding. He doesn't see it. His perception of truth is darkened by his lust for power and by his jealousy of David's success. Keep reading in verse 13. Michal took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Here's what's happening. David makes his way home to his wife. His wife says, you need to leave town. David escapes in the nighttime. Saul's messengers, when I, when I see the word messenger, I think, of, I think of like a courier, right? A courier in, in downtown Houston, couriers, you'd see couriers all over the place on their bikes, and they'd have a, 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 a backpack on their back, and they'd show up in, in, in some office, and they'd, you know, they'd show up with their, with their jogging shoes on and their shorts and a T-shirt, and they'd show up and they'd deliver this document that you had to sign, somebody had to sign for some document that you're like, oh, I wish that document never showed up. 
That's not the way messenger is being used here. Messenger is being used here not as a courier, but as someone who is a henchman, a hatchet man for David, or for Saul, hunting for David. David escapes in the night because his wife gives him warning. It's morning time. The hatchet men show up, and what Michal does is she says, David can't go. David can't go to Saul because he's sick. In fact, he's so sick, he's still in bed. This is the, 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 the effort that she's doing to protect her husband. She wants to give him as much time as possible to get out, and that's why she puts a dummy in the bed to make it believable, to make her story as believable as possible. The, the men believe her, and so they go back to Saul and report David's illness to Saul. Michal is defying her father. She's defying the, can, the king. Now, you know, it, it, it's true it's her father, but, but the king is the most powerful man in the entire nation. So she's putting herself at risk by doing this, but she loves her husband, at least in this point of, in this point of the story she does. Now, before we get to the next verse, there's a fact that we should not gloss over, and it's the fact that there's an idol in the house. There's a household idol that she uses to create this dummy in the bed. The question is, is it David's idol or is it Michal's idol? I think it's pretty safe to conclude that it's Michal's idol, not David's, because David doesn't trust in an idol to deliver him that evening. He trusts in the Lord God of the armies, the God of Israel. That's the name that David uses in Psalm 59. Psalm 59 is the psalm that David writes about this evening, this evening where he is delivered by God. <clears throat> David trusts in the Lord of the armies of Israel. And the, the irony here is Michal lives with a man who is a man after the Lord's own heart, but at the same time, she's, her spiritual life is distant from this man. Her spiritual life is tied to the idol that she trusts in rather than the, the God of her husband. I'm not saying she was a believer or an unbeliever. I'm simply saying that she doesn't have the same faith in the Lord that her husband does. Then in verse 15, Saul sends the men back to get David. Right? The men show up in the morning. Michal says, no, you need to, you need to go. He can't, David can't come because he's sick. The men go back to Saul. They, they report to Saul David's sick. And Saul sends the men back to get David, verse 15. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed, that I may put him to death. This shows you the intensity of the hate. I don't care that he's sick. Bring him. Bring him even on the bed, and we'll kill him on the bed. This is what the king is saying here in verse 15. Then we keep reading in verse 16. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with a quilt of goat's hair at its head. Now they realize they've been tricked. They see the dummy in the bed, and they go in and they report it to Saul. Verse 17, so Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? In other words, her defense to her father is, that, look, the reason I did that is because David threatened me. He threatened to kill me if I didn't let him go. 
this description is very uncharacteristic of everything we know about David. And the text doesn't tell us whether Saul believes Michal or not. What the text does tell us is how Saul views David. He views him as his enemy. That's the word that's used there, as the enemy of the king and the enemy of Israel. He treats him like a traitor, like a treasonous traitor. Though David has always been faithful to Saul, this is the pattern. This is Saul's pattern, the way he thinks. This is actually the way anybody who's in rebellion against God thinks. When the rebellion gets thick enough in the soul, the person reverses right and wrong, and they become threatened by the God-fearing person. The, rebellion, the person who is in rebellion against God becomes threatened by the, the man or the woman who fears God. They hate that person who pursues God. They view that person as their enemy. This is the way it was back then, and this is the way it is even today. The world is opposed to God and to God's people. It has always been so. In verse 18, David then seeks refuge from a trusted confidant. Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul has done, had done to him. Remember, Samuel lives in Ramah. That's, that's his hometown. Ramah is just a short distance from Saul's headquarters in Gibeah. It's about five miles, so say from, from the Fredericksburg airport to the post office. David books it. I mean, David hustles those five miles. He's young. He can probably travel that in a pretty short, short amount of time. He makes his way to Samuel, and this makes sense, to, to seek refuge from Samuel. He's the one who anointed David for God's service. David relays the events to Samuel. He wants Samuel's counsel. He goes to, to somebody who's got a bit more gray hair than him and who's been in the faith for many, many decades. Samuel is up in years by now, and, and so David looks for advice from Samuel. You can imagine his words, something like, Samuel, the king's trying to kill me. I, I think I've been loyal and faithful to the king, but he views me as a traitor. He views me as his enemy. What, what should I do? What do I do in this situation? Now, the text doesn't give us Samuel's response, but I'm sure it was godly advice. Maybe it was, stay the course, steady. Steady, stay the course, David. Trust in the Lord. The Lord will provide. We don't know what the response was, but we can rest assured that it was godly counsel. Then you keep reading at the end of verse 18. And he, David, and Samuel went and stayed in Nioth. Nioth in the Hebrew means dwelling, or in this context, it probably, probably means dwellings, plural. It's the dwellings of the prophet students. At this time, there was a school of prophets there in Ramah. In Samuel's later years, he leads up and heads up this school of prophets in his hometown. Saul then learns where David is, and he sends men to go get him. Look at verse 19. It was told to Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naath in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David but when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. 
When it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Saul sends three sets of hatchet men to get David, to arrest David. And each time the arresters are arrested by the Spirit of God. Chapter 19 began with God protecting David through Jonathan. And then God protecting David through Micha, Michal. And now God, the Holy Spirit, protects David directly by taking control of Saul's men. These are soldiers that Saul has sent to take care of David. It says Saul's men prophesied. That doesn't mean that they were prophets. It means that they spoke like prophets. The Hebrew verb here is the verb nava. It's in the kithpael stem, which means it has a definition of to act or to speak like a prophet. So the Spirit of God controls Saul's henchmen such that they speak and act like prophets. In other words, they speak God's word. Instead of opposing God by arresting his servant, these men join alongside of the prophets to prophesy. It must have been quite a scene. Every time Saul sends a crew of soldiers, they get sucked into along with the prophets prophesying. Saul, sends a, Saul hears about it. He sends another crew five miles to, to get David, and they get sucked in. And so he sends a third crew, and they get drawn in to the prophets. After hearing about how all his men have failed him, the king concludes, if you want to do something right, you do it yourself. So Saul goes out. Look at verse 22. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Seku. We don't know where Seku is other than it's in the vicinity of Gibeah and Ramah. And he, Saul, asked and said, Where is Samuel and David? And someone said, Behold, they are at Nioth in Ramah. He proceeded there at Nioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Nioth in Ramah. This scene takes us back to chapter 10, where Saul prophesied among the prophets shortly after he was anointed king by Samuel. That's chapter 10. That event of Saul prophesying in chapter 10 is very different than this event. It's similar in the sense Saul's prophesying, but it's also very different because in chapter 19, we really see this kind of humorous scene. I mean, you've, you've got Saul who's just kind of coming in like this ogre who's going to get David. None of the other troops have done it, so I'm coming, I'm coming. And as he's walking there, the Spirit comes upon him and his ogreness just kind of fades away, and he starts speaking the words of God before he even arrives to where Samuel and David are. At a distance, the Spirit of God comes upon him, and his murderous desire disappears. So he, before he gets there, starts prophesying, and he's prophesying all the way there. God has arrested the king as well. The event of Saul prophesying in chapter 19 isn't just humorous, it's embarrassing. Look at verse 24. He, Saul, also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. 
The Hebrew word here for naked is aram. It can either mean fully nude or undergarments only. I think it's probably the second of those. Saul takes off his royal robe and lays face down in his underwear, prophesying. It is now, a man's underwear back then was the inner, inner tunic. He takes off his royal robe, he's got his inner tunic on, and he lays down, face down, lays face down, prophesying. I don't know if he's speaking into the dirt, so muffled, or he's turning his head and they can hear him prophesying. But he just prophesies, lying down, to use the word naked. He came to destroy David because his henchmen were unable to do it. And so God takes this king and humiliates him. This is a very embarrassing thing for the most powerful man in the entire kingdom. Keep reading in verse 24. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? This is the same question that was asked in chapter 10, but here it's got an ironic twist to it. In chapter 10, God calls Saul to prophesy in order to validate his position as the new king. But here in chapter 19, God causes Saul to prophesy to benefit the king to be. Saul is prophesying to benefit David so that David can escape Saul's murderous rage, rage, as we will see at the beginning of chapter 20. Next time, this event, this embarrassing, humiliating event for Saul is what allows David to escape out of Ramah. In chapter 19, God causes Saul to prophesy in order to humiliate him, in order to continue to show his disqualification and his unfitness to be king of Israel. He's prophesying like an unrestrained madman. This is not how the prophets prophesied. Please don't read the text and say, oh, that's how the prophets prophesied, as, as kind of this ecstatic crazy, disorganized scene. Not at all. God is a God of order. And when the prophets would prophesy, they would, order, they would prophesy in a dignified, orderly fashion. Not looking as, as madmen, as crazy men, just kind of flailing around doing things that, that are not dignified. But God uses an undignified fashion for prophecy for the king because... The king is undignified, and the king is a king who is in rebellion against God. Throughout this chapter, God has made Saul look like a fool, look like a fool before David, look like a fool before his own family, before his kids, look like a fool before his court, and look like a fool before his people. God will not be mocked, ever. God will not be mocked. And the one who seeks to thwart the will of God will be shown to be the fool. This is what we are seeing as the events unfold with Saul's madness. That's probably the best word to use. As we close this evening, let's, let's go back to Psalm 59. Let's look at the psalm that David writes, praising God, commemorating God for delivering him through his wife, delivering him from that evening where Saul tried to kill him. Psalm 59. It begins with a superscript. 
for the choir director set to Al Tesheth, a miktam of David. We don't know exactly what miktam means. A miktam of David, let's just say it's a psalm of David. When Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Verse 1, David says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Yahweh. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. David is innocent. He's an innocent man. David's life before king and country has been a life of duty, a life of loyalty, a life of faithfulness. He is blameless in the matter which the king has pursued him on. And David knows it. And David confesses that blamelessness, acknowledges that blamelessness before God. Into verse 4, arouse yourself, arouse yourself, God, to help me and see, see what is happening. Verse 5, you, O Yahweh, Elohim, Sabaoth, Elohim, Yisrael. You, O Lord, God of the armies. This is, this is a, a different construction than what you typically see. You typically see Lord of the armies, Lord, small caps, Lord of hosts, Lord of the armies, Yahweh Sabaoth. This is Yahweh, God of the armies, God of Israel. David is just piling on the names of God. The names of God reveal the character of God. They reveal the essence of God. They reveal the integrity of God. And this is what David hangs his hat on when he is being hunted. This is what comforts David when he is being pursued unjustly. That's why he lists all these different names of God. You, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. Selah. Think about it. They return at evening. They howl like a dog and go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? In other words, they act as if God doesn't know. They act as if there's no reckoning, as if God doesn't know they're lying, as if God doesn't know their deception. Saul has been deceiving. Saul has issued uh, an order to his staff to deceive, to deceive David. David knows it. And Saul here cries out to God and laments that these people act as if there is no reckoning before God. Verse 8, But you, O Yahweh, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. David refers to the nations here because the God, uh, excuse me, the king of Israel, Saul, is acting like the goyim. He's acting like the Gentiles. He's acting like a king of all the other nations, which is what the people wanted, right? They wanted a king like the nations. That's why God picked Saul, because he fit the pattern that the people wanted. And, and David is referring to the brokenness of the nations, the sin of the nations, as he thinks about Saul, because Saul is following that pattern of the nations. Verse 9. 
Because of his strength, I will watch for you. For God is my stronghold. My God in his chesed, loving kindness, beautiful word. It's a word of mercy. It's a word that is sometimes translated mercy or loyal love or loving kindness. It's a difficult word to translate because it is so rich in the compassion of God. My God in his loving kindness will meet me. God will look. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Do not slay them or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. This is what you would call an imprecatory prayer. An imprecatory prayer is, God, get them. Sick them. That's what imprecatory prayer is. Bring down your wrath on the enemies. It's a legitimate prayer to prayer to pray. We should be careful when we pray it. But David here is legitimate in his prayer. Verse 11 again. Do not slay them or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield, on account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips. Let them even be caught in their pride and on account of curses and lies which they utter. This is Saul's problem. He's prideful. He's not humble. David is humble. Saul is arrogant, and his arrogance blinds him. His arrogance feeds his power lust. His arrogance feeds his approbation lust to be accepted and glorified by the people. Verse 13. Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth, Selah. Jacob is another way of saying Israel, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God renamed Jacob Israel. And so this is the same statement that David said to the giant before he's about to rush the giant. And he says, and where the giant had been, had been taunting Israel for all of that time. And David says, today you will know that there is a God in Israel after I cut your head off. And all the people will know. David says the same, here, same thing here, right? That men may know that God rules in Jacob, that God rules in Israel to the ends of the earth, that everyone may know. We still speak of the feats of David at the ends of the earth. They didn't even know about the Western Hemisphere back then. We speak of the feats of God through David today. We fulfill this verse right here in the year 2023 in Fredericksburg, Texas. Verse 14, they return at evening. They howl like a dog and go around the city, right? They wanted to get him at nightfall. They wander about for food and growl if they are not satisfied. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness, chesed again, in the morning. His mercies are new every morning, Jeremiah says in Lamentations. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For God is my stronghold, the God who shows me chesed. David can't get enough of chesed. David can't get enough of God's loving kindness. And he recognizes where his blessing comes from. He recognizes that his blessing comes from the God of the armies of Israel. 
This is the great contrast that we see between God's pick and the people's pick, between David and Saul. David is a man after the Lord's own heart, and so God protects David. Saul is a man after Saul's own heart, and so God debases Saul. God brings him low, and God's punishment of Saul will continue throughout the end of 1 Samuel. Let's close with that. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We ask that you challenge us by it. We ask that you give us amazement and wonder at your word. We ask that you help us recognize the value of it in a world that is full of relative truth. Help us recognize the value of your servants from thousands of years ago that we may follow in their footsteps to bring honor to your name. We also ask that you give us safe travels home, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.